Today on Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, The River, Disc 1. Hey everybody, welcome to Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet. We are in season two of this podcast in which we are talking about every single Bruce Springsteen album in chronological order. My name is Rob Carmack, and I'm joined as always by JB Clark. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. Let me ask you a quick question before we get started. Okay. JB, is a dream a lie if it don't come true, or is it something worse? I don't know, man. Your thoughts? I mean, it is something worse, right? Yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's a lie, but it's also something worse than a lie. Right. It's it's a lie, but it's also... Well, we've already talked about this at length. It is a State of the Union-sized lie. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're doing it. We're going there. <laughs> Seconds in. Ooh, shots fired. Um, all right. Well, hey, we're, today, JB, we're talking about the river. And because we've been doing album by album, what we've been doing is we've been covering it track by track but since the river river is a double album we're gonna have to break this up into two episodes so we're gonna do right. disc one of the river side side one and side two today and then in our next episode the one you'll get next week we're gonna talk about sides three and four so disc two so we're gonna we're gonna really stretch this bad boy out uh but that's uh that's that's the current otherwise this episode is gonna be like two and a half hours long and nobody wants that nobody nobody Nobody. Except maybe like a handful of our diehard listeners, but otherwise, nobody. <laughs> right. So uh, a few basic facts to get out of the way. The River, the album, was released in 1980, October the 17th, 1980, to be precise, by Columbia Records. So far, every Bruce Springsteen album has been released by Columbia Records. This is the follow-up, obviously, to Darkness on the Edge of Town, which had done pretty good business. So this is the big follow-up album to that album. And it's released in 1980. It's a double album, as we already mentioned. And it does very good. It does very uh, very good business, indeed. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. But that's that's sort of the setup of this album. This is Bruce's first and so far only double album. So, um, I mean, unless you count The Promise. I guess technically The Promise is a double album. But we'll get to that in a few months. But, right. Uh, this is like a standard yeah. studio release. Yeah, it's, it's the first double album of, like, it's er, the only double album of, like, all brand new material intended to be listened to as a full-blown album. So double, and we'll talk right. more about this in the bonus episode, but the, the difference between uh, just a regular album and a double album, and why, why in the world would an artist want to make a double album instead of just like holding off and releasing just two albums a year apart from each other? You know, Bruce decided not to do that, obviously. So, but before we get to that, we're in the realm of 1980. JB, do you know what the best-selling album released in 1980 was? I have no idea. I should have thought about that. I would not have... uh, Okay, first of all, I'll I'll read you a list of albums. I'm going to read you this list that I have, and I I won't tell you what was the best-selling album, and I want you to guess, after I read you this list, which which one of these albums was the highest-selling album of 1980. Sound good? Okay. Okay. First, you've got Kenny by Kenny Rogers, Hotter Than July by Stevie Wonder, Glass Houses by Billy Joel, Back in Black by ACDC, Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones, Blizzard of Oz by Ozzy Osbourne, The Pretenders, self-titled album, The Pretenders, Permanent Waves by Rush, uh, the debut album from U2, which was called Boy, Remain in Light by Talking Heads, Making Movies by Dire Straits, Get Happy by Elvis Costello and the Attractions, Dirty Mind by Prince, Never Forever by Kate Bush, Double Fantasy by John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Heart Attack and Vine by Tom Waits, and Diana by Diana Ross. Those are the biggest albums that came out that year. So among those... Which would you say was probably the best-selling album of 1980? 
I don't even know that I remember all the albums you just said. <laughs> it was a lot. But did any jump out at <laughs> Those you? Those are some – I mean, they all seem significant. Nothing stood out from the rest of them. I mean, like – those aren't insignificant releases, I guess. Yeah. See, I would have guessed probably either like Boy by U2 or Remaining Light by Talking Heads or Blizzard of Oz or The Pretenders, but none of those would have been correct, JB. The best-selling album of 1980 was Glass Houses by Billy Joel. Oh, wow. Yeah. That took me by surprise. I don't know why. I, that was like the most surprising thing I found in my research for this whole episode. Yeah, that wasn't like the one I suspected the least. That was the one I just kind of laughed at whenever you said I was like, that'd be funny if I said that one because like... It's not, yeah. but it's also not the worst selling, so it wouldn't be surprising. So then it's surprising in that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, the river did very well. It, was, it, was a, it sold a lot of, uh, of units, but it didn't do as well as Glass Houses by Billy Joel. So, um, so that's 1980. So this album was released amidst all of those other albums, and it did, like I said, it did very well. This is the 24th biggest selling album of 1980. It peaked at number one on the U.S. Billboard charts, which, by the way, this is the first number one album Bruce would have. Okay. It, so it peaks at number one on the U.S. Billboard charts on November 8th, 1980, and it holds the position for the entire month of November, or the next four weeks. And uh, this is also Bruce's first number one album in the U.S. And it also, we'll get to this in a minute, but it was the album that gave us Bruce Springsteen's first ever top ten hit single, which was Hungry Heart. So by, by most metrics, this is Bruce's most successful album to date yeah. by 1980. I don't know that I would have guessed that. No, I would have guessed Born to Run. But yeah, me too. But yeah, this but so he's got the momentum from board to run and he has sort of the artistic cachet that he earned with Darkness on the Edge of Town. But then with Hungry Heart as a radio single, that that's the thing that really propelled this album to number one. Hungry Heart pretty much just carried this album to to the number one spot. Yeah, it grooves. It grooves big time. Yeah. So uh, let's see. The producers in the booth are Bruce Springsteen, John Landau, and officially Stephen Van Zandt, which is pretty much the same personnel as with Darkness on the Edge of Town. It was recorded at the Power Station in New York, which is located in the Hell's Kitchen section of New York City. Uh, Neil Dorsman is the engineer. Uh, Jimmy Iovine was only the engineer on one song, which was uh, Drive All Night. We'll talk about that one next week. Uh, yeah. But my guess is Jimmy Iovine was mostly spending this year being busy producing Damn the Torpedoes by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Pretty seminal record. Very much so. Also, JB, you'll like this. Uh, Neil Dorfman, who was the engineer for this album, is also the engineer for Bob Dylan's Infidels album from 1983, which I know you love. Oh, cool. Bruce originally planned to release this uh, as a traditional single-disc album in 1979, and he was going to call it The Ties That Bind, which, if you bought the box set, you already know all this. Uh, but at some point, after he turned in the Masters for for the album, he changed his mind and decided he wanted to go back into the studio and turn this into a double album with a much more expansive scope and tone and theme. And so in a radio interview in 1978, Bruce said that he felt really behind because of the lawsuit. We if you listened last week, we talked about how Bruce was unable to go into the studio and record for nearly three years because he was being sued by his former manager, Mike Appel. So once he gets permission, basically he gets ownership of, of his music and his uh, recording rights back. He goes back into the studio and we talked last week about how Jimmy Iovine says Bruce came into the studio with 70 new songs. We recorded 52 and released 10. So Bruce is basically just exploding with all this new material that he doesn't know what to do with. In fact, in a radio interview in 1978, Bruce said he felt really behind because of the lawsuit. And he said, and this is a quote, he said, I got records to make and I have a lot of catching up to do. So no wonder <laughs> he wanted to make a double album. He had just so much to say and he felt like he'd been holding back for several years at this point. I love that. Like we're behind, we're behind all the projections are off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, he feels like, like I'm like, it's almost like he woke up from a coma and he's just got to like knock out that to-do list like right now. Yeah. This, this is not how the phase two strategy was supposed to go. 
Yeah, that's right. With yeah. the correct course. <laughs> and man, did he. I mean, he talk about doubling your output. He he really yeah. he he really did everything he could to just put out as much material as, as he possibly could. And, and this, in, in fact, you could make the argument that Bruce was never more prolific than he was between 1978 and 1984. Because for every album he releases during that period of time, there's another anywhere between 10 and 70, or 80 in some cases, uh, uh, songs that don't make it onto the album. Specifically, like Born, Born in the USA. So he's, he's writing and throwing away better songs than most musicians will ever write to begin with. And also, this this is the second album where it's pretty much only the E Street Band in the studio. Bruce pr- keeps the personnel pretty tight, uh, with the with the one exception of he, br- he brings in two background vocalists to record uh, on Hungry Heart. Otherwise, it's all E Street Band personnel in the studio. Yeah, and, and like we said last time, last week, uh, or I guess it's been two weeks now. Yeah, uh, since the last episode, that's that's uh, this is really that era where the E Street Band is like cementing sort of their their place in history in these records very much so and, and then, carrying all carrying all the weight ve- very much so and it really does sort of in fact we'll talk about this when we get to the ties the bind but there's a lot that's to be said about how the ties the bind opens with a single snare crack which is also how born in the usa like you know opens with yeah. the, the snare beat um as if to like as if the, the drummer like calls the whole band to attention you know and yeah. um yeah, so so that that's an interesting sort of piece of it. Also, the the, the East Street Band does have a lot to say inside of this album, and I mean all the way down to Little Steven Van Zant being named as an official producer on this record, right in the booth with credit. That's right. Which I mean, we talked about last week that or two weeks ago, like you said, in Darkness on the Edge of Town, he he did a lot of the producing, like he he did a lot of consulting in the booth, but he wasn't named as a as a producer on that record. But on this one, he is. He and John Landau and Bruce Springsteen are all. Uh, co-named as producers of this album for sure let's see in 2016 bruce goes on a massive world tour to promote the anniversary box set from this album and uh, for the first leg of the tour in north america he plays this entire album all 20 songs in order every single night and jb you and i were at the dallas show and we saw him do this yeah i feel like everyone who's a part of this podcast was there <laughs> i mean there certainly are a lot of people who because we were just launching the podcast at that time like i think we Cadillac Ranch was the episode that we dropped the day that we all went to the show. So oh, wow. we were we were very early in that. Yeah, it does sort of feel like everybody's been on on the journey with us, doesn't it? Yeah, I just remember like during that tour getting uh I mean during the Broadway thing we got messages all the time about folks who had seen it, but during the River tour we got messages like every night. <laughs> yeah. Hey, just saw the show. <laughs> Here's a set list. It was great. Got to see this when you didn't, you know, whatever and I'm just, that was fun. Now, I, w- I want to ask you, JB, since that, to this date, is your only Bruce Springsteen concert, and right. um, and that was going to be your first concert you know, prior to you going, when you heard that he was going to do like a 20-song double album from start to finish, did you, were you excited by that, or did you like, think, like, I'd, I'd like a lot more variety in the set list than just that? I think I wanted more variety, but I'm an album listener, so uh, I really appreciated that when I saw it. And, mm. and I think I've since seen a couple artists do an al- albums live and i love that i love them walking you through the record and you know having, having a set that they come up with is nice too but anytime they you know an album is is a story that they chose to tell so anytime they like sort of dive into that story a little bit deeper and just play it straight through in a on a concert i really enjoy and if you know if they're just doing a hit set i at least want them to sort of like weave the narrative like bruce did it uh on on uh broadway and on the netflix special isabel does it uh you know what i'm saying like mm-hmm. I like I like that. So seeing this and him telling the story of this was like 
way better than anything I could have planned, you know, any set I could have planned on my own, you yeah. know, any dream set. Well, and it, like you said, he, he comes out, they, he counts the band in, they do meet me in the city and then the lights go down and Bruce does this opening monologue. And like you said, he's, what he's doing is he's setting us up for, here's, here's the journey we're all about to go on together. And he talks about how the river was his coming of age album. And he talks about how he wants, he wanted to explore what adulthood really means. And that, that there, there's this notion of, to grow up and to become to go from being a child to being a grown up or to being a man, a, a lot of that has to do with sort of finding yourself in in the world and 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 while he he sort of dealt with some of those ideas in Darkness on the Edge of Town, he really digs deep into this and so that was an it was interesting that he decides to basically just like stop before he goes into the album and just say here's why this al- album exists and here's what I wanted to say and now forty years later or thirty five years later I guess as it were. Here, here is here is what this means to me now. Looking back on it, you know, and that that was yeah. I think that was a really interesting, nice way to to ease us into a twenty song set list, you know. And it it was done. He performed it. It was like whatever the twenty person version of a one man musical show is, mm-hmm. you know. It's it's twenty person musical version of a one man show. So yeah, well, and also he um he he did a thing where he kind of stripped the band back down to its basic elements because he had just come off of the high hopes tour where he had like this massive horn section and Tom Morello was on the, on the band in the band for a little while. And so there was, there were lots of like guest stars showing up every night. And he, and Bruce had said like to tour on the river, we need to strip it down and have it only be like the, it, obviously not everyone who recorded on this album could have made it because at least two people were no longer with us, Clarence Clemens and Danny Federici. And so Jake Clemens takes over saxophone uh, Charlie Giordano takes over uh, keyboards where, or an accordion where Danny Federici would have been. And then also Susie Tyrell is added to the band. So yeah. otherwise, it's it, there, there's no additional musicians on the stage every night. So he wanted to recreate, in, as best he could, the feeling of going to these shows in 1980 and 1981, you know? Yeah. Which is cool. Uh, yeah, it was it was, it was was a dream to see it performed as, as a work. Let me, before we get into it, when when you saw him, what were some of the highlights, like from this album, when he played the, the songs from this album, which ones were you most excited to hear him do and which ones maybe surprised you a little bit? I mean, obviously kicking it off with Ties of Bound was great. And then he kind of did this, the talk. And then so you think about how, you know, you're kind of thinking about it seriously, but then you go into Sherry Darling. So, you know, that was like really fun, you know? Yeah. Uh, but you're still thinking about it all sort of from a bigger scope. And then um, I remember Two Hearts being a big sing-along uh, Independence Day with my dad was weird. <laughs> same, yeah. My dad went to me, went with me to the Oklahoma City show. I had the exact same, yeah. Sort of like, well, this is awkward. <laughs> but we acknowledge we acknowledged that it was weird, and so that was fun, you know. Yeah. Like we awkwardly put our arms over each other's shoulders. <laughs> That's very sweet. It was so weird and good. Uh, the Avett Brothers have a similar song, and, and we were in a very similar situation there. Um, you know, Hungry Hearts, fun. Uh, Crush on You was fun live. Um, and then the river obviously was awesome live, uh, as far as disc one, you know, I mean, mean, the whole thing was great, but, oh no, no, no. You can look what you better not touch was, I think the whole reason I love that song is because of the way he did it live. Yeah. We'll we'll get to this when we, when we talk about, we, we did not, you can look, but you better not touch was not one of our most highly praised songs when we went through the alphabet one by one. Um, but him doing it live really did elevate it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, at least musically. Yeah, for me, the the thing I was most excited to see was Sherry Darling. Sherry Darling was always on my list of songs I would have loved to have heard him do live, and that was very satisfying. But the song that really took me by surprise with how much I loved it was The Price You Pay. 
Oh, okay. You know, and we'll get to that next week, obviously. But like that was always I never really thought much about that song. Like it was it's so close to the end of the record and the record has already done a lot by the time you get to the price you pay and you're about yeah. to go into drive all night. And and so it doesn't it never really made an impression on me. I mean, I I always sort of knew it and I liked it okay. But man, seeing him do it live was really transformative for how I personally listen to that song. In fact, now that that has become one of my favorite songs on this record. Because of the cool, live performance. Man. Yeah. That's great. And not not to get a week ahead of ourselves, but I really love that that version yeah. of the song. Let's see. Uh, so yeah, Bruce, Bruce, again, describes this album as his coming of age record. He said uh, once in an interview, he says, I was interested in what adulthood means. That, uh, that was a life that I was not living, but I was on the outside of it looking in. I admired it in a lot of ways. So Bruce is looking at adulthood like a space alien looks at humanity. You know, like, this is this is odd to me, but it seems like something I'm supposed to do with myself, you know? Yeah. Um, and I feel like a lot of his material leading up to this point has has sort of him been reconciling the tension between his young self and his aging self, you know, and that will continue to be a theme in his work. But yeah, this this very much sort of deals with like what it mean what it means to truly grow up. Like he, his first album has a song on it called "Growing Up," and this song this album is like now here's what that actually looks like, and not from the point of view of a of a young kid, but from the point of view of someone who's about to be thirty years old, you know. Yeah, there's definitely a moment where you like graduate from high school and you're like, oh, I'm grown up now. And that's what his early stuff is. And then there's another moment later where you're like, oh, man, okay, maybe I'm never going to grow up. <laughs> and that's what this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, well, and he does, and we'll get into this as we get into the track list. He does acknowledge like that some of the songs on this record are reflective of someone who's basically just doing an impression of a grown up and not really like not a full blown adult, you know, just someone who's like, um, like basically like trying on his dad's clothes and pretending like he's about to go to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, specifically with, I want to marry you. Like, we'll, t- we'll, in fact, like, well, not, not to jump the gun, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, anything we need to get into before we go on to the track by track? Uh, no, man, let's do it. Track by track. Here we go. All right. Disc one, side one, track one, the ties that bind. Snap of the snare, we're we're off to the races. Yes, we did. Uh, th- this was always yeah, gonna... the band is like is so poppy in this song. It is. You're that was like right. that organ line. It's yeah. just so groovy. You know, it's not even. You're not even. It's not. It doesn't feel super rock and roll. You know, it feels very uh, sock hop. You know, rock band or whatever. Yeah, uh, love that. I love it. But the snare is so rock and roll you know <laughs> like the tone yeah well and that that's another thing that sort of shows up in if you go like looking through literature about how people talk about this or how the people who were in the room talk about this album they talk about how like one of the one of the most famous things that everybody who was part of the recording of darkness on the edge of town remembers is how um overbearing bruce was about the sound of the snare drum you know and you watch the uh the promise documentary and it we talk about and we, and we referenced this last time but like how every single time bruce felt like this the drum didn't sound right he would yell from yeah. the booth stick stick and so he would just like psychologically torture max weinberg but then um for this album they found a new place to record uh, that they never recorded in before which is the power station 
And one of the things they were specifically looking for, they wanted a place where the drums would sound really good. And I think it was specifically to like spare Max Weinberg, another hellish nightmare of a recording session. And um, and that the whole album begins with a snare pop is almost, according to like accounts of people who were there, it was almost like their way of saying like, we're satisfied with how the drums sound now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that he that he get the snare just it is and it's it's he got it finally you know it's that's it yeah absolutely yeah and it does it does sound really good and the, the, like you said the whole band I think this is the best the E Street band I don't know if I want to go so so far as to say this is the best the E Street band ever sounds on an album because we've got some pretty good albums coming up but I mean it's it's got to be in the conversation right well this is the record where before this they're like a rock band they're like forcing their way through everything you know they're like yeah we're punk we do it our way we're loud this is the first time they turn in a uh, basically, this is an audition tape for any of them to work in any studio on, you know, for any pop music. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. this is this is the band being uh, everything else. is like the band being a rock and roll band. This is the band being honed practice pop musicians. Uh, and, and that's why it sounds like this, you know, like he wanted to feel like, you know, a live experience with them. And so and so it's everybody at their best, you know, everybody like really just the tonally perfect. Well, I, I have to think that a lot of that comes from the fact that Little Steven was in the booth, right? Yeah. Because oh, he, yeah. he has a very deep pop sensibility. Yeah, he's such a conductor, man. This song was always supposed to be track one, side one, even even on the original one-disc iteration of this. Uh, th- this, was, this was always slated to be track one. So, th- like, of all the changes that were made between... Because Bruce goes in, he turns in a single disc and he comes back and he's like, no, 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 I want, I want to do a double album. Even on the single disc, this was still track one. So Bruce, at the very least, he already had a vision for how the, how the album was meant to start. And, um, it's pretty great. You know, it's a, it's a good track one side one. It's a, it's a, it's about the necessity of human connection, no matter how hard a person might try to pull away from it. Uh, there's something really resilient about the human need for genuine connection with other people. Which is interesting because the last album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, is all about feeling alienated and feeling disconnected. And this album opens with a song about how as hard as you try and as hard as you feel like you're a lone wolf, you can't really live like that. That's not how we're supposed to be in the world. And it's yeah. it's sort of this interesting growth he shows in in between those two albums. Because the first album is I'm you know, I'm alone on a Utah speedway in or on a rattlesnake speedway in a Utah desert or whatever. And like there's a lot of isolation and alienation. And in this album it begins with, but you don't have to be alone. In fact, like resisting resisting connection is counter to the way human beings are programmed, you know? Because yeah. you, you cannot you can't forsake the ties of the bind. It's he- it's a heavy start. It is. And it's it's but it's also fun, which is also sort of the antithesis, almost a response to Darkness on the Edge of Town. So Darkness on the Edge of, the edge of Town is a lot of things, but it's not fun. Like it it, do- it doesn't no. give you it's not a party sounding album. And this album is. Right. And and so it's it's interesting that over the next, you know, from 1978 to 1980, Bruce has sort of this like pop sensibility awakening where he's like, I'm going to just do some fun songs. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make a party album, you know? And uh, because nobody nobody ever will ever refer to Darkness on the Edge of Town as a party album. But this one is, you know? How do you, I mean, yeah. you're a musician. You, you've, you've spent time with people who create stuff like this. How do you go in that span of time from being someone who writes about depression and isolation and disconnection to being someone who writes a double album about how necessary and beautiful it is to be connected to other people? It's like, the, you gotta have it, and he's got it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> I don't know if I knew how you do that, I would have done it. 
don't know how to do that. Yeah. Uh, you just got to have it. You, you know, there's people who can do it. And they, you know, the people who can do it have that light sensibility and that, you know, incredibly sort of deep thoughtfulness too that allows them to be these incredible musicians who can like kind of switch it up. And there's a guy named Theo Katzman who does that really well. He's in his band called Wolfpack. They're, they're very silly, but they kind of probe really deeply too. And they're stupid good musicians. It's interesting how each album has its own personality, you know, like I don't know many artists yeah. for whom every single one of their albums has its own sort of way of existing in the world. And maybe that's why he doesn't just like take outtakes very often and just put them on other albums because he's not trying to make a series of singles. He's trying to, to, to build a world and he's trying to, to create an atmosphere. And, and the atmosphere of Born to Run is vastly different from the atmosphere of Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is vastly different from the atmosphere of the river. And it's interesting to me that he's able to do this over and over and over again, make something wholly different and brand new each and every time without sacrificing a single inch of quality. You know? Yeah. I don't know how he does it. Like you said, he's got it. Like, it, you need to have it, and he's got it. Yep. You gotta have it. He's got it. You do. So, uh, you ready to move on to track two? Oh, dude. Yes. All right. Let's talk about Sherry, darling. Like you said, this is the one you want to hear. This is it. Yes, it was. I love this song. Oh, but, it's such a party song. It is, and it even has like the crowd noises at the beginning of the of the song. Yeah, and I, I love, love that because that. that's how I feel whenever I listen to Clarence Clemens play the saxophone. I'm just cheering and yelling about Sherry. I love it. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah. He he wrote this song during the sessions for Darkness on the Edge of Town, and there's a video of it on the Promise. Uh, documentary and it really feels a lot like he's just playing the piano and singing the song specifically for the purpose of making little steven laugh like he's just being yeah. goofy he's just hamming it up and and so he just like well, oh, go ahead on the actual recording he's, he's almost doing like a randy newman impression you know yeah <laughs> yeah he is a little bit because he's yeah. being very hammy right which is, is a bruce springsteen i really love the hammy yeah. version yeah got some beer you know like he's doing a kind of a randy newman yeah well and the, the whole the, that the whole song is about how he doesn't want to drive his mother-in-law to the unemployment agency like that not a lot of songs out there not a lot of pop songs about how a person is sick and tired of his mother-in-law that's right and if there are it's probably not this fun so well, these are like you know you hear old folk songs like really old ones and you're just like why did that exist you know like these kids all sing songs about like people dying of the plague you know or yeah. you know that's what this is <laughs> that old folk sensibility it's like a very specific and dark song but to a fun to a fun beat to a fun beat yeah well and he even he refers to this because uh, he played this song a bunch on the darkness on the edge of town tour even though it wasn't on an album yet and he told the crowd that he wanted to do a song that sounded like frat rock yes which is what this is it's got like like the the big party noises at the beginning yeah it's, it's big it's it's easy to sing along to it sounds like everybody's sort of like you know in a frat house with their arms wrapped around it like arms it's, draped over shoulders you know it's him doing his impression of a guy in khakis and a sweater going 
What's going on, everybody? I'm the big old bopper, and I got a question for you. Don't you hate your mother-in-law? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's him <laughs> doing his impression of that, and it's so great. It I mean, is. there's like a Jimmy Buffett guitar part, you know, like it's so hammy. You're right. There is the Jimmy Buffett guitar part, the very yeah. light kind of sounding to it. And again, considering everything we know about the previous two albums, it must have been a shock to hear something this fun and lighthearted on a Bruce Springsteen album. You know, it, it's almost reminiscent yeah. of like the E Street Shuffle or Rosalita. Like, he, I feel like he's tapping back into that part of himself a little bit. And we'll talk about this more in a minute, but like. Are you? It's not. Is it really genuinely fun, or is he just trying to like do his trick where he gets you all lightened up and then just drop some real heavy truth on you? I mean, I feel like it, at least in the live show, I think this song is designed for fun, right? You know, but he's just he's livening up so he can bring it down. Yeah, because track three is gonna it's gonna bring it back down again, which is Jackson Cage. Driving home, she flips the previous two songs were pretty up and fun um light-hearted party noises kind of songs and then you got jackson cage and th- this to me feels like a traditional bruce springsteen song because it's it basically is just it's about being trapped in your circumstances. You know, it's about not not being able to sort of escape the the mundane torture of everyday life. This is sort of like the the second cousin to the song Factory a little bit, you know. Yes. Yes. I'll tell you what, you're asking like what stood out to you live. This is when the bass really stood out to me. I was like impressed with Gary during this song live. What did, what did Gary do live that caught your attention during the song? Just the way he's kind of like hopping up and down in the chorus. Like he's kind of hopping around everybody in the chorus. Um, it's cool. So if we're... That's exp- what I like. See, and that's the kind of thing I would never notice. So that that's super interesting that, that you... Like that, that that's a thing that you spotted at the at the live show. Yeah. Specifically that's, as that's a, what I like. in regard I like to the song. Hops around everybody's parts and fills in the kind of the weird spaces. Yeah. So if we're if we're looking at this through the through the lens of a coming of age record, we've got the first three, three tracks. One is about recognizing that growing up and being mature involves allowing other people to be a part of your life, like the op- openness to up to other being open to connection with other people isn't a sign of weakness; it's a sign of growth. Like that's fascinating to me. But then on the second track, you have with Sherry Darling, you have sort of like yeah, and some sometimes being an adult is a drag because you have to drive your mother in law around, and and like it's like he talks about how. He looks out and he can see the like the girls on the beach, but he's stuck in traffic down on Fifty Third Street, you know. And so you've got sort of that lighthearted part of it, and then you go into Jackson Cage, and he's like, "Yeah, but it's also part of being an adult is sort of recognizing that sometimes you ended up in a place you didn't really want to be, and you don't really have an escape plan, you know." Yeah. Interesting, sort of like these three album or these three songs have really covered a lot of ground already, while still remaining inside of the theme. I love and I love the way that the next song fits into that. Which is? You know, like you're trapped in your circumstances. We've got two hearts. Two hearts are better than one. And 
it's about how like when when it gets tough it's you know it's oftentimes better for there to be two than that for there to be one <laughs> it's like a super simple super nice sort of power ballad <laughs> yeah and it's big it's another one of those that you can tell sort of he he brings this one out to sort of bring the crowd in yeah i love it i love two hearts and and we talked more about this in a, in a previous episode, but it's it's intentionally reminiscent of the Marvin Gaye Kim Weston song "It Takes Two, which if it, some live cuts of this song when Bruce does it, he even like brings "It Takes Two right, into it at some it, point. Yeah, just to be, be able to say like, yeah, we know we stole this, but we don't care because it's fun. Yeah, I mean, this is a fun yeah. One. Bruce is on the record at, uh, as a as a thief, a music thief. <laughs> yeah, but you know, a very uh, a very self aware thief. Which you yeah. Know, th- not a thief, a tasteful procurer. Yeah, he's curating certain sounds. Rural procurer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so two hearts and then Independence Day, man. Well, Papa, go to bed now. It's getting late. Nothing we can say is gonna change anything now. I believe in the morning. From St. Mary's Gate We wouldn't change this thing Even if we could somehow I love Independence Day Oh, yeah This is my favorite Bruce Springsteen father-son song yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's either that or, raise, or Adam Raised the Cane. It's got to be one of right. those two. Interestingly, this, this song was a Darkness on the Edge of Town leftover. And this this is one of the few times that Bruce actually recorded, like wrote and recorded a song for one album and then held it back and then put it on the next album. That almost never happens, but he did that with this one. They did re-record it. it, it this is not the original recording. He went back and, and re-recorded it. it. It's a lot less angry than Adam Raised the Cane. Much which is, less. Which is good because it, it feels like, because Adam Raised the Cane is all about how like the division between father and son is almost, it almost feels like an act of violence. You know, like he has to do this because his father is holding him back in some sort of way. But in this one, it's more of like sort of a, a resignation. There, it, it's almost it's it's that the 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 moving out of your father's shadow isn't something that should be a source of conflict. It's just a, it's a rite of passage. It's something you do as a grown up that you can't you can't just be an echo of your parents. You have to become your own thing. It's about self-differentiation. And so it's not about it. So it lacks the rage of Adam Raised the Cane, but it still has sort of that, that overall genuine thing of, and I I know he, he talks live about how like he and his dad were sitting at the kitchen table and his dad was talking and he was talking and they just weren't hearing each other. And they weren't really understanding, even though they were speaking English and they were communicating in a language that they both understood. There was, there was some sort of gap that neither of them could bridge. And, and he, Again, it has this sort of resignation to it, which is to say almost like I realize now this is the way it's supposed to be. Fathers and sons at a certain point have to self-differentiate. The father has to let go of his expectations of his of his kid and the kid has to the, the grown adult child has to have a moment of realization that I can't just be I, I can't live live my father's youth for him. I have, I have to go out and, and try something on my own, you know. And it, it yeah. almost feels like a funeral, doesn't it? Like, in fact, the first time I heard this song and didn't really pay that close attention to the lyrics, I thought it was about a guy whose father had died. You know? Yeah, it it, it does. Well, it, it's a moment that uh, that there is like a, a tiny death and a, and a tiny rebirth, you know, mm. in life. And so it's a much more eloquent than the version of Independence Day that, that me and my father wrote. 
which my mom refers to as the F word fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's much more eloquent than that moment. So when you hear this song and like having had the F word fight in your, in your past relationship with your dad, then you go to the show in Dallas and, and you know, the song is coming because it's on the album and he right. gets to it. And you said you and your dad sort of let you put your arms around each other. How, like, how was that for you? Like knowing that you did have your own sort of journey through that. What was that like for you? I feel like it was a nice sort of moment where it felt like um, any like everything that was unsaid between us was maybe okay. Yeah, and it, and and we like forgiven it in the past. Did did either of you say anything about it after the show was over, or was it just one of those things like you don't have to? No, we we've referred to it, but yeah. never like talked about it. It's a powerful song, and and now and I I said this I think when we first did the episode on this, but I remember. Both times I saw Bruce do this on the River Tour, I remember thinking to myself, he seems very old to me when he's doing this song. Because I know I know who he was when he first wrote it and when he was first performing it. And now he's the age, he, in fact, he may be older now than his father was when he wrote the song. And so there's a weariness to it. And I, I would imagine, and he has not articulated this, but I would imagine seeing his kids grow up, there's a part of him that hears an echo of this song, not in his own head, but almost like as a thought bubble over the over his children, you know, like, yeah. have, have they differentiated enough? And do they feel as free as I needed to feel when I was their age? You know, like he's on the other side of it now. He's through the looking. Do glass. you, do you remember at, right after we saw him do this live, this is the only conversation you wanted to have with anyone for like two months <laughs> about this song. Yeah. Just what you just said. <laughs> yeah. I, that was the only thing you wanted to talk about for a long time. Right. That I wanted you, right to talk after. about. Yeah, it was like you, we the conversation that we just had was we have had a lot and we had it mostly right after we saw him live. Mm. <laughs> and I love that like that you're still thinking about that, you know? Yeah, well I mean I'm I'm 39 years old now. Like I'm getting my yeah. my kid ne- the the week that this episode comes out, my oldest kid is going to turn 10. And You're so like, my kid's basically Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I was gonna say like next thing I know, <laughs> next thing I know he's gonna be like I bought a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> I talk like this now, Dad. Yeah, it. Uh, and I mean, I don't know. It, you want to pick me up some Marlboros? <laughs> yeah. No. And as a parent, it it is it's an interesting sort of thing because I remember like my phase of this also like the. The phase of, and I mean, my rebellion was not that big of a, rebe- of a rebellion, it, but it, there were, there were times where I felt like I needed for some, like somewhere deep inside of me, I felt like I needed to differentiate myself from my parents. You know, I, I felt like there, there needed to be a point at which I decided who I was and not just sort of a, a second, um, j- just an also ran or a second version of, of someone who had gone before me. And now I'm on the other side of it or I'm, you know, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm, I'm, like rapidly approaching it. And so there, there's going to be a point at which one of my kids decides it's time for me to leave home, you know, and that's, and that's healthy. That's the way it's supposed to be. And I think this song is sort of acknowledging kind of the bittersweet nature of what that looks like. And the next. Yeah. So let's flip the vinyl to side two and side one or side two, disc one, uh, track six is hungry heart. Is, is 
was my theme song when I was being a performatively emo rebellious kid during my Independence Day phase. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Just thinking back on it now, I was like, oh, yeah, I was such a sad, stoic, you know, kid. No, man, I was such a dramatic emo kid. He was always just trying to make people think I was a sad, stoic kid. Mm. <laughs> I was just like, my heart is hungry. Yeah. It needs to be filled. Why do I feel so much? That's funny. Yeah, I, I guess this this is sort of like the anthem of just people who have all the feelings. Yeah, and obviously this song resonated with lots of people because it was the lead single from this album. And like I said before, it was the first Bruce Springsteen song to ever break into the Billboard Top 10. It peaks at number five. And this song was a full-on game changer for Bruce. It, it generates lots of radio play, which generates higher ticket sales. And Bruce even writes in his autobiography that this is when girls start coming to the show. Because up until this point, he says, this is Bruce describing it, not me, but Bruce says, like, up until this point, it was like disaffected young men who were trying to find their place in the world, who were showing up at Bruce Springsteen concerts. But then, all of a sudden, Hungry Heart becomes a radio single, and, like, there's girls at the shows. And that's in... So his his audience is growing, but also, like, the the dynamic of, like, who's in the crowd is growing. And it's all because of this one song. And, he, and this song, by the way, even when this album was meant to just be a single-disc album, this was always part of it. This was originally track three on the Ties That Bind single-disc album. So Bruce always... It was always sort of expected that this song would be a, a single... In fact, Bruce originally wrote the song for the. We talked about this in our original episode of, of this one, but uh, Bruce wrote uh, the song for the Ramones. But John Landau, Bruce's now Bruce's manager, absolutely forbade him from get, giving it away. And, and so Landau rightly points out to Bruce that he's already given away other great songs that had generated radio success for other artists, like Because of the Night and Fire and Blinded by the Light. And Landau is like, we really, I would really like for you to have your own radio single that you didn't just like hand off to somebody else. And Bruce listens, and they record this, and it totally works. This is Bruce's first top 10 single. That's kind of surprising. This is not anywhere near my top 10 uh, favorite Bruce Springsteen songs, and it's a top 10 single, you know? But it's, it's very um, radio-friendly. It's got a chorus. It's very short. It's catchy. Oh, yeah. You know? It's a great song. I mean, I love it. We yeah. both gave it four stars. It's, it's a great song. Um, yeah, it, and it, it definitely changed things. And wh- where do you go whenever you have a hungry heart? Are you going to say out in the street? You go out in the street. Put on your best dress, baby. And I'll fix your hair up right. Because there's a party, honey. Way down beneath the neon lights all day. You've been working that hard line. Not tonight. You're going to have a good time. This is a cool, just sort of like a rock and roll song, man. Yeah, it is. And um, th- this song was not on the original lineup. This was one he added later after he decided this was going to be a double album. And it's a it's a fun one. I'm, I'm th- this song again, like a big part of this this album is about cre- generating sort of the feeling of the live show. And th- I think this song does a really good job of servicing that that goal. Yeah, man, I love any song that like starts off with a a big snare hit and just like telling somebody to get nice and dressed up because we're about to go out on the town. I, you know, like that's a recipe for success if you're trying to get me to like a song. <laughs> yeah, you know, just like, hey, do you want there to be some tension, but like the good kind, and everyone to be just look incredible and just go see what kind of trouble we can get into? I'm just like, absolutely, yes. Is there a guitar solo? Okay, <laughs> is there a guitar solo? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. So I so, love the song. Me too. And and the, the, the song, by the way, is in our top five or, or not our top five, our hall of fame. 
So, uh, yeah. so we, we both are, are... I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, it's not. It's not in the top five, but it is in, in our Hall of Fame. And this song, it's it's really fun, but it's it's also not just about having fun when you get off work, even though this is definitely one of Bruce's yabba-dabba-doo, it's time to get off work songs. <laughs> um, but the song is about... And it's about who else is going to be there. Like the refrain of meet me out in the street. It's not just like, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to have a crazy night tonight. It is, I'm going to, I'm going to go where, where my people are. I'm going, I'm going to like work has, has caused me to disconnect. And so I'm now I'm going to get off work and I'm going to go reconnect. So this is, again, it's very relational. It's very aware of where other people are and how Bruce wants to like connect with other people. Like, I, I feel like that's one of the, the major themes of this record is like sort of like looking wherever you can to find some kind of connection. Uh, I'm writing down a note for whenever we make our Bruce Springsteen book to have a chapter about top 10 Yabba Dabba Doo songs. Yabba Dabba Doo songs. The top 10 times Bruce Springsteen ever had a Yabba Dabba Doo time. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. We should do that. I, I just love that you have a whole category of Yabba Dabba Doo songs. It may just be this and one and night. Are there other Yabba Dabba Doo songs that I'm I think not he's got of? some more. We'll have to explore it. Yeah, well, let's let's keep yeah, let's keep our eye out. We'll we'll see if we yeah. can find more Yabba Dabba Doo songs. I'm sure there are. They just, I love that. That rules. That's the <laughs> oh man. Cuz uh, Factory right. is not a Yabba Dabba Doo song. Factory no. is a like I, I hate my life. Factory's a high high song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah this is a Ugh. he so so the whistle blows bruce uh slides down the the nose of a woolly mammoth and uh or th- down the, the spine of a brontosaurus and heads in, yeah. into his car and says yabba dabba do that's that's what's going on here um anyway so yeah when you're out the street and you're looking good and you meet somebody who's also out in the street looking good you get a little crush on him so we're talking about crush on you which is track eight This song starts off just like saloon love scene, you know, just like killer guitar sliding up and down the neck and just just hollering. He's just hollering about how smitten he is. Yeah. And live this show, this song was super fun. Like Bruce is having a great time with this, which is really funny because Bruce does not like this song. (laughs) Uh, I just forget like this song. He is quoted as saying. And I'm quoting, we firmly believe this is the worst song we ever put on a record. That's a quote from Bruce Springsteen about this song. And still, he did the song every single night on the River Tour. <laughs> he hates this song. Oh, man, I love this song. I do, too. It's super fun. I, I like the, it's got a lot of fun little wordplay. You know, um, yeah. the, it, the, there's, there's a lot going on. I, I, I think it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed the crap out of this when he did it live. This song is an exclusive exclusive ratings company. Very few songs that we both gave a four and a half to. Ooh, that's that's very high considering how. I mean, you have to wonder like if Bruce had been here for that, like what would he have rated this song? Like night of the night with the Jersey Devil apparently is Probably higher on so. it. Yeah, is less than this. Oh man, that means that I can't trust his face, his taste in music anymore. I guess not. <laughs> Yeah, you, you got to take it all with a grain of salt since he prefers oh, Night with the Jersey God. Devil, I assume. This was not a, a part of the original lineup when it was a single disc. This was added. And if I had to guess, considering, again, how much Bruce just does not love this song, 
I would bet that given a second chance to track this whole album, I I have to assume that Bruce would probably take the song out and replace it with either Be True or Loose Ends, which were both cut from the single disc version of this album. You believe those both of those songs were on the, in the original single disc, and when Bruce is putting together a double album, which is, by definition, twice the size of the original disc, and he's got so much more room, he cuts arguably two of the best songs that he wrote during these sessions. And yeah. puts Crush on You instead. But it's still fun. No, it is fun. I, I'm, a, I'm a full-blown defender of this song. I really like this song. Yeah. I cannot say that about the next song, though, which is, you can look, parentheses, but you better not touch. This actually was one of the survivors from the one-disc version. The original version was a lot more rockabilly, but this song, in, in one form or another, was already was always planned to be on the, this album. And we talked about this a lot when we talked about this song, but in my opinion, this is the worst song on the album. Not because of the music. I, actually, I really like the music, but I struggle with the song because the narrator comes off as a rock and roll incel, and I... <laughs> don't like it. I, I I don't like the narrator of this song. I, I find the narrator deeply disturbing. In this yeah, I get that. The music's incredible, though. <laughs> it is. I mean, that's the thing that keeps it from being a one-star song for me. Because, cause yeah, and, and for those who either didn't listen or forgot, let me, let me just read to you one of the verses from this song. It goes, um, I called up Dirty Annie, Dirty Annie, on the telephone. I took her out to the drive-in just to get her alone. I found a lover's rendezvous, the music low, set to park. I heard a tapping on the window and a voice on the dark. You can look, but you better not touch. Or actually, the, 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 that's, that's fine, other than the fact that he calls her Dirty Annie. But the, the next thing is talking about how he, or the, the verse before it, he's talking about how he's watching TV. And he says, there's a pretty little girly looking straight into my eyes from the television. Uh, well, I watched as she wiggled back and forth across the stream, screen. She didn't get me excited. She just made me feel mean. So just the the idea that there are women out there who won't be with me, and that makes yeah. me mad. Like, I could do without that. And then sort of the opposite of that is the next track, which is kind of weird placement. It's kind of the only place that didn't super, like flow real good for me is uh, I Want to Marry You. This is another one that if you listen to it at face value, you're like, oh, this is a nice little sweet song. But then if you look at it more closely, you realize, oh, it's just about a guy who has like a fantasy of rescuing a single mom. Yeah. You know, who he doesn't even know. In fact, Bruce, uh, at one of the live shows on the tour in 2016, he even acknowledged this, that this song is a full-blown fantasy. He says, it's not the real thing, but you got to start someplace. So this is where it started. So, or where I started. So he's like, I don't really understand love and commitment. So... I can paint a picture of a guy who notices a really pretty girl or a really pretty woman who happens to be pushing a baby carriage. And then I can write a whole story about how she and I would be a good pair. And I, I could like rescue her from like lonely single motherhood. So 
that that is basically what the song is about. But it is it is sort of like through the eyes of somebody who doesn't quite understand how like things like love and commitment and um, companionship really work. You know, he's he's just he's yeah. creating a fantasy of those things. It's night. It's a very naive song. It is, which I mean, and and, and th- thankfully Bruce does acknowledge that that, that this is sort of a, a fantasy male savior song. Like the the notion of I want to marry you is is really what he's trying to say is I want to rescue you. You know, I want I want you to feel beholden to me because I you're a damsel in distress and I'm here to, to save you. Yeah, from, from the terrible life I assume you're living because you're you're a single mom. You know, right, right. Now that said, it's it's a very pretty song. I like the melody of it. I thought when he did it live, it was really nice. This is one of the times it, like he like brings the house lights down, and he really takes his time. He's got the shakers, and uh, it, it it was a nice moment at the live show where you don't necessarily have to appreciate the lyrics to appreciate sort of like the musicality of it. You know? Yeah. So I don't. Where are you? Where again? It's been a while since we talked about. It. Where are you on this song? How do you feel about it when it comes on? Uh, it's whatever. It's like it's connective tissue for me on this record. Yeah. Yeah. But it but it does have to do with sort of the coming of age thing, right? It deals with like adulthood versus how we imagine adulthood should be. Right. Well, I'm trying to figure out what what uh, a relationship like that would look like. Yeah, just sort of like following following that thought process to its logical conclusion. Yeah, fantasizing about responsibility. Yeah, which is funny because the next song is about somebody who was not looking for a responsibility and gets thrown into it. So really Definitely I want to found it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to marry you. And the next song, the river are almost like opposite sides of the same coin. So like independence, Day and hungry heart. Yeah, actually. Yes, very much so. So, so it is interesting how a lot of these songs are sort of paired up next to each other and, or like even Sherry Darling and Jackson cage. Like one is about like looking out longingly in a fun way to the people who are melting on the beach to being like actually trapped in your circumstances. Like in, in, in yeah. the Sherry Darling, he's trapped in the car in a traffic jam in Jackson cage. The, the primary protagonist, the the woman, she's stuck in like her own life, the traffic jam that is her life. So here you have sort of a similar sort of thing. So I want to marry you is the fantasy of commitment and companionship and track 11. The river is about the actual thing of, of, of con- connection and companionship and commitment. I come from down in the valley Where mister, when you're young They bring you up to do Like your daddy done Me and Mary, we met in high school When she was just 17 We drive out of this valley We go down to the river and into the river we die. Oh, uh, this song we talked about before, this song is, is directly about Bruce's sister and her now husband, which if somebody I'm related to is going to write a song about me, I hope it's not quite as, like, I feel sorry for you as the song is. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I wrote a song about you. Oh, that's great. Uh Oh, this is a real bummer. <laughs> I, I have to wonder, how does Bruce's niece or nephew feel about this song? Because the whole thing is about how, like, Mary gets how pregnant much and the guy, feels, yeah, the, the guy feels trapped. And yeah. and he doesn't know how to, like, get out of what he now sees is, like, a basically a life yeah. sentence to a miserable life. And you have to think, yeah. some, like, at this point, the I mean, this baby would be older than me now. So you have to, like, wonder, like, 
Yeah. How's that going? You know what I mean? Like, Uncle Bruce, Bruce what's I want to marry you about? What's about seeing somebody you really love uh, or think you could love, but not knowing because you're not even young? <laughs> well, Uncle Bruce, what's the river about? It's about after you were born, your dad couldn't stop looking at the door. <laughs> it's about how you ruined your parents' life just, just by existing. <laughs> it's anyway, about how at night he felt like there was something on his chest and he just couldn't breathe. Anyway, pass the potatoes. Why are you crying? <laughs> the song was inspired by a lot of empty beer cans. I helped your dad <laughs> haul out of his backyard. Oh, man. So, but I mean, this song is beautiful. I, I, th- th- it is so haunting and so perfect. And it's, it's a nice way to end side two. Like really, if you didn't have the second disc, this all by itself, this would be a really, really great album. It's a great record. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm. Yeah. That harmonica solo just came up to me out of the rattling of them cans. <laughs> <laughs> the melody fully formed. Just like your father's sadness. Sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> I gotta quit. So. On our ratings from the past four years, in, in the first half, in the first disc, there are five Hall of Fame songs that we've already yeah. talked about. So it ties the bind, Sherry Darling, Independence Day, Out on the Street, and The River are all in our Hall of Fame. So of those, JB, do you have a favorite? Ooh. That's tough, right? I mean, I love The River. I love The Ties That Bind. Probably The River or The Ties That Bind. Yeah, I'm either The River or Independence Day, I think. Those are okay. I mean, I, I'm hard pressed. Sherry Darling was one of my early Bruce Springsteen favorites, and I have that 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 song will always have a special place in my heart. But I mean, between Independence Day and the River, it's those two songs are so beautiful and powerful. I'm 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 just so glad they exist. Well, we've we've never really ended on a cliffhanger before, but we're not done talking about this record. We have a whole other disc to talk about, but we don't have the time to talk about it today. There's not enough time. There's, there's, not there's enough. never enough time. No, I mean it's a double album. What are you gonna do? We can't be here for yeah. the next two hours. We got we got a Patreon episode to, to record. We do. We're going to record a bonus episode. It's going to be our top five double albums of all time. Yeah, super excited about that one. Uh, you've got a nickname to hand out before we go. Right? Oh, I do. I we're, do. I do. Thank you for reminding me. We're still doing nicknames, by the way, for patrons who donate at the five dollar or higher level. Jeff Haller is a uh, new patron uh, on Patreon. He's uh, donating to help us do the show. And some of that money is also, or half of that's going to no kid hungry too. So that's cool. So we give out nicknames and so here we go. So, uh, Jeff holler, holler, holler. I swear he'll run all night again just to see Nicole and Murph and to hear a new record play. And he's not the only survivor fan on the pod. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like Survivor as in Eye of the Tiger? As in Jeff and I's favorite. No, not Survivor, Eye of the Tiger. Like, as in Jeff and I. I mean, uh, yeah, Jeff and I's favorite reality TV show. Survivor, oh, Survivor the TV show, not the not, not Yeah, the rock he, he messaged me about Survivor the other day. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes! <laughs> so he likes, uh, he likes this long drive all night since we're doing the river. Figured we could uh, steal, the, steal the meter of uh, drive all night and nice. do that. So. I love that. Thanks for support, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Well, and thanks to to all the patrons who who donate and are participating. And uh, we hope you're enjoying the bonus episodes. We're having a lot of fun recording those. So They're a blast. Um, yeah, and yeah. Keep sending us messages about them and sending y'all's lists too. Uh, we're loving it. Oh man, I haven't even seen people have been have people been submitting their lists. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I saw that somewhere. Is it in the, uh, Slack, the Slack channel? Slack or in. Um... I don't know. Someone Facebooked or, or tweeted or we've gotten some lists. 
Nice. That's very cool. All right, yeah. well, so uh, to the patrons, head on over to, to the other feed, and you can find the, this week's bonus episode, like JB said, about uh, in which we list our top five double albums. And, uh, but in this feed, we'll be back with you next week to talk about disc two of The River. So until then, everybody uh, go on down to the river, and hopefully it won't be too dry. <laughs>